Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have Kieran Cron from HubSpot, who is the Global Best Channel Sales Manager Award winner this year. Kieran, it's an absolute delight to have you on today. Please, can you give the listeners a bit quick background on who you are and how you came to win the award? Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me today, Marcus. It's a pleasure to connect. A bit of background about me. So I have been at HubSpot for about three years, been working in sales for roughly seven years now. The interesting thing for me is I was never exposed to channel sales at all before working at HubSpot. I had no idea that was even a thing or how much channel sales was contributing to revenue around the world. I guess from a business perspective, I have focused a lot on working very closely with partners in terms of consulting and helping them to transform the way that they do business. And yeah, I guess from a personal perspective, I love to travel. I've spent, I think the last last year, I was out of the office for about 11 or 12 weeks, which is a nice thing about working for a tech company, about getting to work around the world and get to travel and spend time enjoying myself outside of the uh, four walls and the ceiling of the office. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm just on a mission to continue to travel and experience life for everything that it has to offer. So, Karen, tell me this. What did you win the award for? So, the award was for the most multi-product sales globally in the channel side of that business. So, when I talk about multi-products, that would be what we call a growth stack customer. Effectively, you know, also being a platform, we have marketing, sales and service as part of our offering. So, that would have been uh, a combination of me selling multiple products into the same business, which I think is ultimately one of the most important drivers for growth because the way that I looked at it is, you know, marketing, sales and service cannot be siloed. So I think they're all very much intertwined, which means that a lot of my messaging to prospects and customers is very much in line with that. This brings me to a real bugbear of mine, but also a passion which is this whole concept of the customer experience and recognizing that sales, marketing, lead generation, customer service, implementation, they're all part of that customer experience. And the only way that you're really going to not only acquire but keep customers is by delighting them at every step of the way. What do you consider to be the most important cultural values of a business that does that well? I'd say, I mean, making sure that you're solving for the customer first. I mean, we have a motto internally at HubSpot, which is solve for the customer. Making sure that you're, as a salesperson, obviously, you know, when people are driven by money and commission, sometimes that's not always the case. However, I feel like doing the right thing for a customer when they come on board ultimately sets them up for success, which, which will come back to help myself in my role continue to grow and expand that account. So... I'm always looking at, you know, ways of kind of empathising with the, the business owner or the customer to put myself in their shoes to understand what it would look and feel like to run a business and making sure that I'm sort of aligning with their, not just their short-term goals, but helping them to achieve, you know, five, ten years' worth of growth. Very interesting. Tell me this then. If we look at the resources that a channel manager needs to succeed in role, what are the most critical resources that they have to be able to draw on and implement? I'd say for me, I mean, really it comes down to having very strong and open relationships with the partners that I work with. So I work with about 40 
um, sort of agency partners across the Australia New Zealand region. So I'd say 75% of my time is spent uh, working closely with partners on consulting into their business operations, understanding what their, their sales process looks like, how do they hire and fire people, what are they doing from a cultural perspective, how do they market their business, and generally just getting very deep into understanding the day-to-day operations of the business and the partners I work with, I think is probably the most important part. You know, sure, we can help them to sell, but I think ultimately if you're going to have a successful book of business, you need to be very much focused on all of those other parts of the business. You know, Traction, I think, is a, is a book that I've learned a lot from and thinking about the EOS and how that can apply to a business in terms of a system being comprised of different sections and different sort of moving parts. I think that the more that I can focus on that aspect, the more that I can actually help businesses and, and partners to really have bandwidth, not just to sell but to onboard clients, to delight those clients and give them the ability to continue to grow without hitting a ceiling. I think that's probably been a key driver behind some of the success that I've had. For people who don't know, what does EOS mean? It's the Entrepreneur's Operating System. Okay. What I'm hearing from you, Kieran, is that you have to understand your partner's business. What drives them, what motivates them, where they're headed, where they've come from, uh, what they're trying to achieve both in their business and personally, correct? Most definitely. So again, this ties very closely to the philosophy that we've written about in making channel sales work. What I'm fascinated by is the number of channel managers, particularly in tech, who phone up and say, Kieran, what have you got for me this month? And the response is nothing. Great, I'll call you next month. And they take so little time and care right at the outset of the relationship. So what I'm particularly interested in is in the recruitment of new partners and their onboarding, what's the process that you go through in order to ensure that they feel understood, that they understand that you're working towards common purpose, which is to help their business succeed, and in turn, you're going to get your needs met too? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, to help you understand, we, we sort of separate out our sales roles in the channel side. So we have business development managers and channel account managers. So I work on the channel side managing partners. It's important to make sure that the relationship gets off to a good start. I mean, working really closely with the business development manager to really understand, you know, what were the key drivers around uh, that particular channel partner wanting to come on board in the first place. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do is, is actually based around sort of sandless sales. So GPCT, goals, plans, challenges, and timeline, those are the key things that I look to understand and not just at a sort of level one, but try to move through to level three. So what, what are the personal sort of implications or consequences of them hitting a goal or not hitting a goal? And then from that point, kind of using that as a way to springboard into the relationship and, and effectively running through what we call an agency growth plan to map out what are the key metrics and reverse engineering what their revenue targets are, thinking about the average spend of a customer, how much lifetime value they expect from a new retainer over the course of a couple of years and then looking at ways to a increase the size of their engagement b to increase the number of engagements they have and also understanding you know at what point in time are they going to be able to hire so who's going to be the next hire what is that role going to be and how do we get from point a to point b so you know they can continue to expand their bandwidth and really understanding what's what's the driver behind it. I mean, some people are in business because they like to 
have a better lifestyle, that more, more freedom, more flexibility to spend time with their family uh, and their friends. Other people are just really kind of keen to build up a bit of an empire to sell a business after three to five years. So understanding those drivers, I think, really kind of helps me to get in a position where I can really, really motivate that person because, let's be honest, I mean, business gets in the way, people start servicing clients. We need to make sure that we're always kind of reminding them of why they started in the first place. Honestly, that's just a joy to hear. It's so rare that I come across that kind of attitude and those values of really putting the partner, making it partner-centric and drilling right down into the individual drivers, what their personal motivations are so we can keep reminding them of why they're doing it and supporting them in meeting their objectives. So my next question is this. If we look at your typical week or month, what are the behaviours that you execute habitually? What do you do consistently, repeatedly, without making excuses or blaming, and you do every single day in order to ensure your success? I think it really starts with how I kickstart my day. So I've got a, a kind of what I call a boot-up sequence, which for me, I don't really think about too much. I'll probably just go through the motions, but I was talking to my manager about this recently in terms of the fact that I like to spend, uh, as soon as I wake up, I spend the first probably 10 to 15 minutes practicing mindfulness. So breathing exercises and making sure that I'm sort of clearing my mind and, and becoming centered. You know, in sales, obviously, can be quite stressful if you're not making your targets. So I kind of make sure that I get up and get onto the right foot. So I find mindfulness and, and forms of meditation can be very impactful. I've, I've noticed that since I've started to implement that through using apps like Headspace in the last couple of years, that that's had a profound impact on my levels of focus during the day and making sure that I'm sticking to the task at hand and avoiding distractions. After that, I would probably go into green tea. Don't drink a lot of coffee, but I try to stick to green tea in the morning. I actually have a mix of, I try to drink something that's good for the gut. So I'm very cognizant of my overall, not just my mental health, but my physical health as well. So paying particular attention to my gut health and where the immune system sits. So a lot of fermented foods, I try to eat sauerkraut, often having apple cider vinegar in the morning, and then just some regular like multivitamins. That sort of starts my day. I feel like that kickstart before I have breakfast is probably one of the most important things. I kind of overlook it, but talking to other people and seeing other successful people in life, I've noticed that they have something similar in their life as well, something that kind of kickstarts the whole day. That would sort of be the start of the day in terms of how I just get myself ready for the, for the day ahead. After that, I try to take a, a half an hour walk in the morning. So I might go fasted. I sometimes practice intermittent fasting as well. I find that kind of helps with clarity and just making sure that my blood sugar levels are not spiking too rapidly and just getting out into nature. I've found that being outdoors, walking through a park or through a forest, just being outdoors really helps me a lot. Like it kind of comes back to the mindfulness in terms of the fact that, you know, I'm able to get away from everything and just clear my mind. And then I've got a pretty long commute into the city. So generally takes me about an hour on the train train ride into the city. So I live quite far out from the city. And during that time, you know, it's not always the same, but I tend to find myself gravitating towards different podcasts. So I might subscribe to, you know, sales-focused podcasts. 
probably less so these days. I, I, I try to have a good spread of different pieces of content. So, you know, I listen to Joe Rogan a lot. I'm big into the concept of of uh, biohacking. So there's a guy called Ben Greenfield that I listen to his podcast a lot. Some really interesting stuff around there. Also listening to marketing and technology-related podcasts. So trying to have a good spread of different topics and people of different disciplines that I feel like I'm sort of taking bits and pieces from constantly all the time and just trying to have a very open-minded, diverse outlook on, on life in general, I think probably helps a lot. So from there, I'd say that a big thing for me is is calendar control, being very much cognizant of how I'm spending my time. So I'd, uh, I actually break up my day into to smaller sections. So I take a break at 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock. Those times are typically reserved for, for eating, making sure I'm getting good nutrition in and also counting calories and macros and making sure I'm working towards my my daily targets. I also set myself up with a step target. So I wear a Fitbit and I try to get in about 15, 16,000 steps a day. And even just the, the reminders that I get, little vibrations uh, around the hour mark to, to let me know that I need to get up and walk around. I'll, I'll typically try to get out of the office. And luckily for us, we're quite close to Circular Key in Sydney. So I can walk down there, I can actually get a view of the Opera House, go get some sun, just get some fresh air, walk around the city. And, yeah, just really kind of get away from it. So when I come back, I can just be super focused on, on the task at hand. I'll make sure that I'm sort of overall thinking about how I'm splitting my time. So if you've got 100%, I'll try to fill up 75% of that time with a lot of one-to-one coaching and consulting with partners, checking in, running through those processes that we spoke about before, there is some group coaching, so one-to-many, so I can scale my efforts, particularly with more group coachable topics, so things around you know, how to build out a sales process, what sort of good pipeline generation looks like, and just looking at ways that I can scale my time so I can make sure that I'm touching as many um, partners as possible throughout the course of the week. And then, of course, the other 25%, I'd probably spend in direct prospecting, so looking at you know, leads the partners have registered and starting to identify opportunities and how I can sort of start to bring those opportunities back into my partner's pipelines. Well, what I'm really amazed by is not only the mind-body-spirit balance and the emphasis on that, but also how you're doing things so differently to the majority of people in channel in that you recognize how critical coaching is and to dedicate 75% of your time to coaching your partners primarily onto one is time. How many touches do you typically have with each of your average, you know, your 40 partners? It does differ from partner to partner. I think to be effective with your time, you do need to try to categorize or, or bucket partners based off their sort of skill, their will, opportunity and, and those types of things. So it depends on sort of how I've graded a partner, but I would want to make sure that I'm speaking to, across the board, I want to make sure I'm speaking to all my partners at least once a month with certain partners that, that do require a bit more attention or are investing more time on their side. I try to catch up with them weekly, so quite a few of my partners will have recurring calls. Half an hour calls once a week I find to be quite effective and making sure that I've got a consistent thread through those calls as well. One of the things I 
have struggled with sometimes in the past is not having consistency from one call to the next. So making sure that I'm always setting up next steps and assigning partners with homework, I find to be very effective at understanding, you know, who's worth spending time with, who's serious, who's dedicated to the process, who's putting in effort from their side. And it's a two-way street, right? I mean, you know, I'm happy to give as much of my time as they want as long as they're sort of giving things back in return and it's a it's a working relationship like that. So I try to make sure that all partners are being touched. Some are at a, at a higher level, other ones are sort of more ongoing and, and the cadence between those might be a little bit shorter. Very interesting. Okay, so you're having regular recurring coaching sessions. There's a cadence of coaching. What about cadence of accountability? That's a good question. I think they're actually one of the same. I think generally speaking, if I refer back to what I was talking about before in terms of completing homework and and actioning tasks and items, that's a big part of keeping people accountable. So I try to check in with partners uh, as well, like on a quarterly basis in terms of looking at the their quarterly business targets and running what we call a QBR or quarterly business review. That also sort of plugs into the agency growth plans that we have and laying out the key metrics in terms of what needs to be done, not just on a monthly basis, but even weekly and daily, making sure that we're checking in. And yeah, at the end of the day, like one of the the most important things I think in the beginning of a relationship with a channel partner is getting buy-in from them to to make sure that they're okay with you, you know, giving them a little kick up the ass once in a while. And I think most people appreciate that. Like it, it's when you first work in channel styles, it's like, oh, I don't want to rock the boat too much, but I've found that, you know, the more that you can challenge people in a respectful way, challenge their ways of thinking and also what they're doing, the more they respect you for it and the, the more they sort of want to, yeah, help you to achieve your goals as well. Well, I I think the definition of partnership is that you help each other get better. And I think if you don't have that upfront contract with them and you're not clear about the expectations, the boundaries, what's acceptable, what's not, and what is expected of them every day, then when they don't do that, you have no one but yourself to blame. And I think a lot of times we see organizations grow their partner base very rapidly, and they recruit a land army of basically anyone with a pulse. And then they wonder why they're not able to get them to produce. And the majority of channel partners may make one sale, and that'll be it. But they'll have your logo on their website, just in case. Um, But as a channel manager, that must be incredibly frustrating, because you want everybody to produce. How do you make sure that you're not only recruiting and onboarding them well, but you're making sure that they're consistent. If I had the answer to that, I think I would be a very rich man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I mean, I I can throw some ideas your way and then we can debate them if you'd like. Sure. Yeah, I think most problems in management, whether it's in channel or in direct sales or general management, normally start earlier than when they manifest themselves. So the first thing I would always suggest is look in the mirror. If something's not working, look in the mirror and ask yourself the question, what did I fail to do? Or what did I do poorly or in a wishy-washy manner that meant the expectation wasn't clear? I think it's really important that partners understand that their number one job when it comes to 
growing their business is focusing on pipeline because you actually prospect for choice. If your pipeline is weak, then you have to win everything. If you have a full pipeline that's brimming with three to 500% more than it needs in order for you to hit your target, then you have choice because one may be a pain in the ass and you don't want to work with them. Another one may be the timing is wrong. Someone else may have a problem in the family. And if you've still got five times that number that you need, you're going to have the ability to push back, plant your feet, refuse to discount, and take your time. So I think a really key part is making sure that prospecting is a habit. You don't have to like it, you just have to do it. And working with the partner on what we call a surging day, where you spend time with them prospecting together. And every 20 to 40 minutes, you stop, you capture the lessons, you work out where you're getting stuck, and you help each other improve. And each time you do that, everybody is learning. Another key thing, I think, is creating a a failure log. Failure is your best teacher. You should fail fast, early, and often. And what's really key here is to encourage people to admit their failures, not cover them up. They get punished for hiding them, not for making them. And they capture the lessons so that everybody can learn from them. Having a lesson log, I think, really important for partners and channel managers to capture at least three lessons daily. If you think about that, that's 123 lessons a day coming out of your channel. I mean, when was the last time anyone that you know improved 123 ways in a year? And you have the power within your partner network to be able to generate thousands and thousands of lessons, which you can then store and save in a central repository for everybody to access. When people have a problem, they can look there first to not only what the problem was, but how three different ways to solve each one of them. Because when you learn a lesson, the key is to identify what the problem is and then come up with three to five ways to fix it yourself before you bother someone else to try and get help to fix it. Because otherwise you create learned helplessness. So a number of things like this. Another really powerful tool that we built into the book was the client or the partner-centric satisfaction tool which is how will you, as my partner, hold me as the vendor accountable? What are the five most critical areas that I can bring to the party in terms of knowledge transfer, communication, timeliness, commercial awareness, whatever it happens to be that matters the most to you as my partner? And so in the book, we've actually put 11 tools there specifically to help partners become more systematic about their approach to how they grow their accounts and grow their business. So I'm really curious to find out, do you have tools at HubSpot that you share with your partners, such as pre-call planning tools, post-call debriefing, rehearsal, problem-solving tools, anything like that? Yeah, I think we do. I mean, we've been around a long long enough time for a business to have developed our own playbooks, and we openly share those with partners. I think. a big part of what I like to do with partners is sort of really understand like what does their current sales process look like? How do they take someone through from anonymous all the way through to becoming a customer? What are those key steps in understanding how they're moving people through from one stage to another? And what is happening with inside each of those different steps as well? So, you know, really leaning into 
I guess the opportunity we have to, as you mentioned before, like the, the transfer of knowledge. So we've got roughly three to three and a half thousand partners in our ecosystem globally. A lot of the bigger agencies that have been around for longer in the US have kind of gone through a lot of the pain of, of growing a business. You know, how do they actually generate quality leads? How do they hire people? Talent sourcing, I find, is, is a massive issue with a lot of these businesses and retaining talent as well. So then we start to talk about things like culture, etc. And the great thing is like that I'm really thankful for is we've got a really open and honest network of partners. So you think that they'd be competitors and yeah, sometimes they are, but for the most part, you know, there's, there's enough business out there for them to say, this is my patch, this is what I do well, this is how I distinguish myself from, from everyone else out there. So in that, it means that we, we do have some really great opportunities to actually connect partners with each other. I find that I can talk to a partner about certain topics for a long time. You know, I might be driving home the same message for six to 12 months and they don't really implement until I introduce them to another partner and it comes from their mouth. As soon as that, that drops, the penny usually drops, and then you start to notice a big change. So I think a big thing about channel partnerships and sort of the role that, that I have and that we have here is to actually almost become a quarterback. So knowing how to pull in different people of different skill sets that have got experience in different parts of life and sort of just playing to your strengths and your weaknesses. It's it's pretty awesome to be able to organize a group coaching session with 20 of my partners where I'm just a facilitator. I've just got to bring in someone that's an expert in that particular field and then I can sort of stand back and I can just almost uh, conduct a, a conversation between the different partners and that I find is extremely fruitful. You know, partners learn a lot off each other. They want to understand, you know, what, what's happening in their world, like what's working, how are they succeeding, what are they failing at as well, learning from those failures and, um, and improving on the processes over time. So that's something I really love about the channel world is just really being strategic and connecting people with each other. So you don't always need to be the expert, right, and we're not. So there's a lot of things that I'm, I'm good at. There's a lot of things that I'm probably not very good at. So I try to play those as much as possible. I keep making the point that a channel manager is actually closer to a general manager in makeup than they are to a sales manager. And certainly everything that you're describing, I mean, that whole piece around being adaptable, making sure everyone's accountable, heading off conflict before it needs to start, but not being afraid of creating an environment of constructive conflict, high levels of business and financial acumen, highly effective at coaching, very collaborative, getting other people to do the work themselves rather than nannying and nursemaiding them and rescuing, co-developing goals, uh, really focused on results, very effective at leadership, managing relationships, planning, managing activities so that you're disciplined in terms of what activities you're picking and choosing to focus on and prioritize solving problems, implementing and reinforcing process, whilst also being able to read the situation and be very self-aware of how you may be impacting and how you may be biasing things. So recognizing where your strengths and your weaknesses are, bringing in other people, thinking strategically, 
managing that stress, taking action, and managing your behavior within a very within a finite amount of time. That's a hell of a complicated and challenging role. What do you love most about it? I think it's the, the variation. It's the, the ability to have all these different layers like an onion and to peel different things back and to work very collaboratively, you know, like bringing different people together and seeing that sort of transfer of knowledge is highly rewarding. It's, it, there's never a dull moment. Like you mentioned before, it's, it's a very challenging role, but it always keeps you on your toes. And I feel like being in direct sales could become very monotonous. You know, there's a lot of repetition in sales and, and sometimes that's a good thing, sticking to a process that's tried and tested, but having the ability to, to really kind of get deep into a business and provide a lot of strategic advice. So, you know, I still keep waking up every day and I'm just as pumped as I was the day before. So it's just that never-ending challenge and, you know, even, even managing to become a, a high performer, I still feel like I've always got things to learn. I'm never happy with... I guess the level that I'm at, I think it's, you know, life is almost like a game. You can continue to level up and there's constantly ways of looking to improve over time, not just in sales, but, you know, for example, we're, we're lucky enough to have access through work to a, um, an amount of money that we can use for education outside of work. So I've, I've done hands-on sort of digital marketing and growth hacking courses to upskill on, on marketing so I can also provide advice where, where relevant, I'm now looking into a workshop on vulnerability, so how to be more vulnerable with people and how to show empathy and, and make sure you can understand things from, from both sides of the table. And then another thing I, I want to do soon is like to work on my public speaking skills and just communication in general. I think you know that's some really good skills to have and I haven't done much public speaking in the past. I've recently started to get into it in the last probably six or nine months, but it's something that I'm starting to enjoy. It was extremely scary in the beginning, but as you start to make mistakes and you learn from them and you get involved, you know, you realize that it's, it's powerful, like being able to stand up, in, not in front of big crowds, but 50, 60 people and sort of see the impact and the feedback that you get after that. So I'm constantly looking at ways to, to develop, not just as a salesperson, but just as a good human in general. That's wonderful to hear. I recommend a fantastic couple of books for you by Dr. Mark Goulston, G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N. Just listen and talking to crazy. Mark is a specialist in suicide prevention, but he's also the leading force in terms of empathic listening and truly fantastic. They're available on audio for your commute in. Now, I'm really curious about something. I mean, you talked about learning from failures. What were you brought up to believe around failure? And what do you believe now? Because my parents both immigrated to, to Australia around about 35 years ago, they went through some hardships um, and, and they obviously, they would have failed a lot, you know, in the beginning. And when they moved to Australia, I'm sure for them it was, it was difficult to, you know, they effectively had to, to start again and, and to build up a new life. So they've always kind of instilled this, this idea of failure is a good thing. So it's not really failure. It's more, you know, try again. Let's, let's do that again. If you, you have that kind of mindset and that growth mindset of every time you fail, you, you learn something, you take something away, then you're going to continue to improve over time. So, you know, it's like you were saying before, 
I think failure is one of the best things you can ever have. If you're not failing, then you're just not trying hard enough. Absolutely. A really interesting book that I think you'll enjoy is Getting Naked by Patrick Lencioni. It's all about vulnerability in a consultancy type of role. And in fact, all of his books I've really enjoyed. So let me ask you this then. You're a young whippersnapper. The average age of agency owners, I'm guessing, is a fair bit older. And yet you're offering them strategic business advice. What kind of pushback have you had? And how have you managed to address that? Because you're obviously doing it very well. And people must relatively quickly trust you. What do you put that down to? I think it's it's about the way that I go about it is is being very empathetic. I always try to make sure that I'm seeing things from their side, and I think it's one of the, the the pitfalls or the traps that people in this role can fall into is thinking that they know best. You know, they've they've done this before; they've been taught a process. But unless you can really understand those key motivators of, of what's important to that person, I mean, kind of just really uh, trying to force something down their throat that they might not not necessarily believe or agree. And so kind of just making sure that I've really got a good understanding of what it is that drives that person, but then also recognizing that I don't I don't know everything. I mean, I'm gonna learn off the partners that I'm working with as well and and the stuff that I can learn off them, I can move into relationships with other partners as well. So by no means do I know everything about running a business I mean I've never run a business myself so I'm never claiming to be an expert by any means but I think that just from absorbing a lot of the wealth of knowledge I've had from working with a lot of different partners I've sort of got to a point now where I can really kind of provide a lot of value by making making referrals and recommendations to things that I've learned about other businesses that are very similar I mean that's that's something I think really kind of helps us with the roles that we work here in, in HubSpot is the fact that I'm constant, I'm working with marketing agencies, sales consultants, very similar types of businesses. So there's a common thread that often runs through a lot of these businesses. And a lot of the, interestingly, like a lot of the owners of the business and, and people that are like in, in senior management, they're so caught up working in the business that they never get a chance to step back and work on the business. So I feel like that's a big part of the value exchange and the value that I can deliver to a business owner is, is pulling them out of the trenches, even if it's for a half an hour call, and talking to them about processes, about longer term plans, how are they scaling, how are they preparing for growth, do they have enough pipeline to make sure they're hitting those targets over the next sort of six to 12 months. And that, I think, is one of the most refreshing things for partners is them getting the ability to step back and actually have that helicopter view of a business from the top down. You kind of reminded me of my daughter, Anna. She's a very keen football soccer player. And I've noticed that in the last couple of years, as she's started to play futsal, the indoor version of football, she gets many more touches. And as a result, her skills have improved exponentially. And I'm seeing the kind of approach you have to channel more like futsal than the full field 11 aside. Because in that, you don't get many touches by comparison. Whereas, you know, when you're playing three or four people on each team, everybody is running around, everybody's passing, everyone's getting a touch. And that's where you build your experience. And I think it sounds to me like the channel has been like a hot housing program for you in how to run and grow a scalable business. 
and be effective. Would that be a fair analogy? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, the, the sales side is, is something that I'm passionate about, but the more and more I, I develop my career in, in channel, the more passionate I've become about it just because of, of that aspect, I think getting into the business mindset of, of how to grow a business is, is probably, I'd say, more interesting for me at least. I mean, thinking about going back to the EOS stuff that we spoke about before, thinking about a business as a system, you know, having a blueprint and something that is repeatable that addresses, you know, all of the key operational sides of a business, marketing, sales, operation, finance, hiring, and admin and all those different aspects, I find that really, really interesting and the intricacies of how those things are all intertwined. And then also when you take that high-level view of a business, like helping the, the, the partner to step back and look at the business as a system means that you can start to really diagnose and analyse where there are issues. So, you know, if you've got poor hiring obviously that's going to have an effect eventually on the revenue for the business because they start to hit a ceiling and really kind of making a diagnosis. I used to just be a bit sort of short-sighted and think about things like pipeline and leads, like sales and marketing, but, you know, you often identify that there are other parts in the business that are sort of bringing everything down and unless you're taking that holistic view over everything in the business, then you can let those things slip through the cracks and they might not feel it now, but eventually that's going to come back to bite them, you know, eventually in the next sort of couple of years. Absolutely. In fact, I've developed a program called Channel Sales Excellence, which starts with the plan, making sure that the vision and mission and values are clear, aligning those with the partners, making sure that the business is planned and blueprinted, that you put in place the processes and, and the position, sorry, of the business you want to become. So designing the role, forgetting the people that you've got at the moment, but designing the ideal candidate job description, how they're going to be measured, what their targets are going to be, what behaviors they're going to need, what development they're going to need. And then you look at your existing people to see who you can retrofit into those positions. Do you need to replace them? Do you need to train them? Do you need to develop them? Do you need to move them into other areas? Then looking at the processes that you have across the board for attraction, whether it be prospects and customers or candidates or suppliers or partners, looking at your administration, your organization, your finance, all of that. And and once you've done that, then looking at the performance metrics and focusing on the leading indicators rather than the lag indicators. So the ones that allow you to adjust your course to make sure that you're on target. And then once you've got that, making sure that that passion is built in so that you can scale and then revisit constantly. Because I think one of the biggest mistakes I see organizations make is they get addicted to what made them successful in the past. And we only have to look at the likes of Amazon and Apple to see organizations that have attacked themselves. Apple managed to cut their product range down from 200 to 10 in a very short space of time. They literally just cut everything else out so they could focus. Amazon has been attacking itself and its marketplace and evolving constantly. Over the last 15, 20 years, they've gone through so many different changes and everybody looks to them in terror from a competitive standpoint. I was speaking to one of our clients over in the States in March and they were saying that they're involved in construction. And one of the speakers showed a picture of a bathroom and said, 
who do you reckon manufactured this? And it turns out it was Amazon using 3D printing. Now, they may never end up in the bathroom business, but you can be damn sure that they're attacking themselves. They're looking to innovate constantly. Whereas I look at some of the other larger organizations out there, and you only have to look at history, Nokia, Polaroid, all of those sorts of businesses that essentially couldn't let go of what made them successful. And I, I love your passion for innovation and change, for asking difficult questions, for failing forward and learning from those failures. I am curious about one thing because there was a really interesting bit of research that came out about three weeks ago from InsideSales.com. They looked at 116 million sales activities and they came to the conclusion that the most successful salespeople were the ones who prioritized, who said no. And in fact, those who did closed 46.1% more frequently than those who didn't. What do you say no to on a regular basis? I say no to people that are not fulfilling their end of the deal. So getting back to what I was talking about before in terms of setting homework for people, doesn't need to be anything major, but them following through and completing a basic task, like for us, let's say if I'm speaking to a prospect, it can be something as simple as creating a free account with us, connecting the CRM to their website. These little things that I generally have seen as flags, like good flags in the sense of, well, if they're doing it, then generally they're committed to the process. If they're not doing it, I think they're probably tie kickers and they're never going to follow through anyway. So like little things like that, I mean, that's on the prospect side. When it comes to dealing with partners, I'm fairly patient, but I think that if you're not getting out what you're expecting on the other side and then not coming to the table with the things that have been made out, I mean, unfortunately, I've got other people that want my time. So that's one thing that I think I've become pretty pretty stern with over the last three years is really valuing my time a lot and making sure that if people are not um, upholding their end of the, the deal, then unfortunately, I'm going to have to spend my time with other people that are going to deliver more value. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the skill of contracting with people and the value that you're known by the promises you keep, not the ones you make, I think is really important because time is finite. You're dead for a hell of a long time and you don't want to waste it on people who aren't going to fulfill their end of the bargain. So really concentrating your energy on those who can and will rather than those who could but won't and really prioritizing on the high-value activities making sure that you're helping people who are willing to help themselves and really understanding that if people don't keep their promises, it's a very strong indication of what it's going to be like having them as a customer or as a partner. So I certainly use that in my evaluation of prospects. And I think you have to be quite ruthless about your disqualification of non-prospects or non-opportunities or poor future partners because it will eat your time. It's like recruitment. A bad hire isn't just the cost of the recruitment. It's the lifetime value of all the customers that they're going to piss off who are going to go to a competitor. But what you're doing if you hire the wrong salesperson, for example, is you're creating a management problem down the road. And if you take on the wrong partner, you're creating a management problem for you and your business. And a partner is way too valuable and far too precious to make the mistake of recruiting the wrong ones. So tell me this, you must have made some mistakes in terms of partner recruitment in the past. 
what are the alarm bells that tell you, hang on a second, maybe we, there's a red flag here and we need to investigate a lot further before we say I do? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think you know, if, if I think back to the, the days when I was more more involved in the business development side here, it, it'd be very much around uh, having a pretty strict qualification process. So, you know, we, we'd have about, I'd say, four calls before deciding whether or not we wanted that partnership to, to become more long-term. Again, it's, it's doing little things like asking them to prepare a target account list, understanding you know what are their what are their revenue goals, and making sure that they are bought into the process. I mean, a lot of what we're doing with uh, with our partners is actually it's a lot of work. Like, there's a lot of change involved. It, it could involve them moving upstream to work with you know bigger businesses. It could involve them completely uh, changing the way that they. They actually service clients, the kind of delivery models that they use, how they're going to package and price their services. So getting them bought into that and I guess the vision of Inbound, which is a big part of our sort of our company and the way that we've grown over the last 12 or 13 years. And I guess more importantly as well, like just sort of understanding what, what kind of person they are. I mean, like, are they a good fit for us? Like, is there are there cultural connections? Do we share the same values? And making sure that those things align as well, I think, are equally as important as, you know, just the business stuff alone. You've raised the question that I was about to raise myself, which is value alignment. What are the core values that you consider to be vital for a good partnership with HubSpot, with you? I would say that having an open mind and being willing to change is probably one of the most important things. People that are stuck in their ways and, and are resistant to change are extremely difficult to work with. And people that are hungry, businesses that are willing to and, and, and really like chomping at the bit to soak up knowledge and are there, you know, asking questions, wanting to participate, showing an investment of, you know, of their, not just their time but their, their mind as well. And, yes, yeah, I mean, we have a culture code that you can look up online which which is an acronym of heart, like being humble, empathetic, adaptable, remarkable, and transparent. So some of the key sort of values that we, we really look at when uh, taking candidates throughout our hiring process, I think some of that stuff would also apply to, to the partners that we work with as well. Very interesting. What I'd like to do is start wrapping up. And in terms of the way you see the channel evolving, the future of the channel, because certainly in my book, I'm seeing more and more business going down the channel route. And I think there's going to be, it's a wave. It's not a trend. It's been going on for 35, 40 years. And I always describe the channel as the ginger-haired, ugly bastard stepsister of direct sales. And it's not really been given the prominence that it genuinely deserves in terms of training, talent, investment of time, focus from the leadership and management team. What trends are you seeing within the channel that people need to really be aware of and be prepared for? Because if they don't adapt, they will end up dying on the vine. I think something that we're, we're starting to see now is that we need to start to segment and, and, and bucket our partners based off a couple of different levels. So we sort of think about the top end of the spectrum being the high-volume 
sort of lower transaction type businesses that almost you call like an IT reseller that are used to reselling other types of software and sort of packaging those things together. We've got our sort of bread and butter partner in the middle that is is across the whole platform, so focused on not just marketing but sales and customer support and then sort of smaller businesses that might be, you know, sole operators or maybe two or three people at the most and and aligning with those different levels, making sure that our investment of time matches what the output of those particular partners could be. So not over-indexing on one particular partner at the sake of foregoing the time of another partner. I think that's that's pretty key for us. And that prioritization of time is 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 ultimately what's going to make us successful in the long term. So it is easy to get caught up with as much as I'd like to spend time with, you know, equal amounts of time with every partner, you know, you need to be cognizant of the fact that time is, is precious, like we were talking about before, and making sure that we're investing into the right areas. You touched on this earlier in terms of creating collaboration between partners, sharing, learning, and so on. One of the areas that I'm really fascinated by and I think is going to become increasingly important because I think vendors are going to become less important in the end user's experience. The partners have the relationship typically with the end customer. And I think increasingly what we're going to see is more partner with partner collaboration. And Jay McBain talks about the need for niching. So it's no longer good enough to be the managed service provider that focuses on healthcare. You're now going to be the managed service provider that focuses on care homes in Southeast Chicago. And you're going to see a lot of niching because as technology becomes more sophisticated, it's going to be very difficult for any one partner to cover it all. I mean, security being prime example of this in terms of how on earth are they going to be able to manage all the different aspects, not only of the IT, but the human side of security, making sure that everything works together. So are you seeing more partner with partner type of setups occurring, what are you doing to facilitate? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, um, we're, we're currently in the process of seeing sort of two of our leading partners in, in Australia and New Zealand uh, going through a merger process, which is, which is really exciting. And I think that, you know, we've got a, an ecosystem of partners now that's big enough to see that you've got businesses playing in different spaces. So, you know, you might have one business that's, that's very much focused on content marketing and the lead generation side of things, you might see another business that's very much focused on the tech side and more complex integrations with enterprise-sized companies. There's always an opportunity to bring partners together and, and even if we're not facilitating it, they, they, they actually go about doing it in their own means. So instead of letting that happen behind the scenes, I think the more that we can facilitate and, and kind of create an environment and a stage where we allow partners to sort of cross-pollinate, to learn from each other. You know, we have a partner day once a year in Boston. We've got another one coming up in Sydney quite soon. So just providing, you know, spaces and time and, I guess, platforms to allow partners to, to come together is, is huge. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest takeaways I've come to the conclusion is that it's not just about me spending time with partners. It's about facilitating the connection of, of, of different partners and allowing that the different skills and, and sort of lessons in life they've learned and 
yeah, just basically providing them with the opportunity to, to mingle more with each other and, and thinking about strategically as well. You know, you've got certain types of partners that are going to really add value to each other and being really aware of like who makes a good fit for which particular partner and making those introductions when the time's right. I couldn't agree more. One other thing that I'm observing is that the more innovative forward-thinking organizations are really starting to value the channel. And my sense is that the next generation of CEOs is going to come from two critical areas. It's going to be the head of uh, data, because that's the person who essentially has the most holistic view of the entire ecosystem in which the organization operates. And I think the channel chief, I think the time of the CFO and the VP of sales being next in line for the CEO role is coming to an end because they're too siloed and they're too focused on one thing. Whereas I think the channel chief needs to be, they're they're more like a chief executive. If you look at their profile, the breadth of their scope they need to be able to go from high level into the weeds, be highly commercial, and really focus on what's good for the overall organizational ecosystem, makes them far more strategic than the typical VP of sales or the typical CFO. So what's your next step in your career? What do you reckon you'd like to make your next move? That's a good question. I've been thinking about this recently. I think... I personally like to spend my time with a lower number of partners, so working much deeper with a fewer number of partners so I can get much more entrenched into their business, really get stuck into sort of the day-to-day operations. So, you know, working in a more strategic channel account manager role where, you know, instead of working with, say, 40 partners, I might have 10 partners. But I'd spend a lot of time with them in person, you know, moving around the region, running workshops, speaking in events, and just becoming more entrenched in their business, I think is sort of where I'd like to move in this future. Very interesting. Are you coming over to the UK at all? I have nothing planned at this point in time, but uh, that's not to say that it won't change in the next six to 12 months. The, the reason I ask is we're just launching this Channel Sales Excellence Program, which is all about focusing on a tiny handful of highly productive, consistent partners helping them to achieve all of their growth objectives, putting together a shared plan and creating common purpose, a common sales methodology and language, making sure that you walk out of there um, with plans that you have, you've got written pre-call plans, you've rehearsed, you've researched, you've looked at the competitive landscape, and you're going to market tackling probably three or four accounts over the course of that initial program and then working collaboratively over a period of the next few years, making sure that uh, every four months you're bringing on maybe two new partners, onboarding them properly over 120 days. Meanwhile, you're getting the next two lined up. So we'll be running three of these a year. And I'd love you to come along as my guest with a couple of your partners to road test this, because I think what your philosophy and mine and ours is very closely aligned. And what you're doing is what we're training. And I'd love to get your experience in the field to refine this, because I think for scale-up businesses, I cannot see a better way of doing it, because I've been working in this sector for 23, 25 years. And what I've seen are mistakes being repeated 
uh, because it's the way it was done to them. So let's just finish off on the bombshell, which is what are the mistakes you see channel managers making in dealing with their partners that cause them to have too many of the wrong type of partners who don't produce and then blaming their partners for their own failings? People that take a one-size-fits-all approach, they think they can paint every partner with the same brush, not understanding, you know, what particular part of the life cycle they're in within their business and also within the partnership as well. And also just not, not spending enough time digging into those business processes. You know, it's, it's extremely easy as, as a channel salesperson to just actually go into a direct selling mode Instead of giving the, the partner a rod, you give them a fish. So you can go into their, their leads and you can start selling into them. And, I mean, that's going to get you wins in the short term, but it's not a sustainable practice. You're not going to be able to scale that and you're never going to be able to be in a position where you've got, you know, highly productive partners that are helping you to achieve your goals. Fantastic. Okay, let's wrap up with two questions. Best books, business books that you've read in the last six months? What would you recommend people read? Without a doubt, it's got to be Traction by Juno Wickman. It's been a big one for me and starting to implement some of that stuff internally here as well as having those conversations with partners has been very fruitful even in, in its early days. Excellent. And how old are you now? I'm 31, turning 32 in a couple of months. Right. So if you were speaking, advising your 21-year-old self, what acts of idiocy and self-sabotage would you recommend them to avoid? <laughs> I would say just get out there in the world as much as possible. Don't, don't, don't get stuck. I mean, like spending too much time in one place I think can be, can be detrimental and uh, just try to, try to spread your wings as much as possible. Find new people, build new connections. Don't get stuck in your ways go out there and experience different cultures and, and make sure that you're, you're trying to sort of constantly look at things with the eyes of a, of a sort of three- or a four-year-old kid, you know, just be open-minded, have fun in life and just don't take things too seriously. Excellent advice. Kieran, how can people get hold of you? So you can connect with me. Probably the easiest way would be on, on LinkedIn. So Kieran Cron, pretty easy to find, pretty unique name, Irish first name, German surname. Yeah, probably the easiest way would be to find me on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Kieran Cron, thank you very much. Really appreciate your insights and congratulations again. I can absolutely see why you won the award for the best channel salesperson in the world for HubSpot. Outstanding. I appreciate it. This is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor Podcast signing off. If you would like to be a beta tester on the Sales Excellence training program, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. And if you'd like to crash a class or you'd like to have a chat about your business or your channel, please phone me on 07-515-937-221. That's Marcus Kauke signing off. Look forward to speaking to you the next time. Thanks a lot. Bye.